This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn. And as it turns out, we are connecting back into Truman Capote and his swans. Thank you for joining me today. Hello to all of our new listeners who are as enchanted with Feud Season 2, Capote versus the Swans, as we all are. Good to see you back again, my dedicated sleuths, many of whom have reached out on social media and email in texts and in phone calls. Alicia, girl, talk to us. Spill the tea. What do you think about the series? So many thoughts, really. I started out watching just for fun. I was going to be a voyeur, get some snacks, and just enjoy the ride to come, so to speak. I was taking a break, totally working on new content for you. I gave myself permission just to simply enjoy the series. Well done, I thought to myself. Girl, I said, you've done it. Capote's Coterie from episodes 99 to 118 on the main feed, another dozen not done yet on the Done and Done Patreon. I patted myself on the back. I told me to relax and enjoy the ride. I made it less than 42 seconds before I grabbed a notebook and then it was off to the races. As I was watching the first episode, I couldn't help but think, what did I wish you knew that I knew as I was watching it? What's fact? What's fiction? And where are the mysteries and the spider webs in between? Knowing these bits that I'm going to be dropping will add some layers to your viewing experience, perhaps. Welcome to Swimming with the Swans, Alicia's version. We're going to be going through every episode, adding a little glitter, a little sparkle, a little razzle-dazzle to this already pretty incredible story from my perspective. We're going to roll episode by episode, and it turns out there's more than one Done and Done podcast episode just about episode one of The Swans, The Pilot. The laps I'm taking with The Swans just in this episode take us from the opening scene through the first commercial break. (laughs) Just the A block, like the first 13 minutes. Welcome to the first of your Swan Swimming episodes about The Pilot this week. I sometimes just can't help myself with all the delicious details. Before we begin today's deep dive into the Pool of the Swans, I do have a few fine folks who need a big old shout out. Thank you, thank you, thank you to our newest supporters and friends on Patreon. Natalie H., Maggie, Funny People 98 and Amanda W., y'all rock. Big, huge love and thanks to each of you and our entire Patreon community doing a very large part to make this done and done podcast dream happen. If you are looking for a bit more to your listening experience, patreon.com slash done and done is the place to go to get more information on ad-free and early episodes, as well as those weekly not done yet bonus episodes, where we are currently undertaking a new series on not done yet while the swans are playing out over here. On Patreon, I'm really excited about this one. We are beginning journeys with Joan Didion. Joan Didion, Dominic Dunn's incredible sister-in-law, writer, person extraordinaire, and her journey and writing as it connects into our investigation. Always something happening on Patreon. Again, big thanks to new and sustaining supporters. Big thanks to you for tuning in today as we go all over the map and time zones today in our journey. Let's unfold episode one, as there is so much more to what you're actually seeing on screen. Capote versus the Swans, Alicia's edition, episode one, part up to the first commercial break. Let's investigate. 
investigators, I am thrilled, thrilled this series is finally released. Like you, I have been waiting for it for a long, long time. I had originally planned all of our Capote's Coterie episodes to line up against the release of the show, and right now I'm thinking the universe that that didn't happen, and we get to dive back into this story with all of its glamour, its intrigue, its backstabbing, its infidelity, and so, so much more with its famous and infamous cast of characters. It really is so connected. The show beautifully presented the attention to detail. Ah, so good. There's so much to love about everything happening, but there are also so many spider webs that if you could connect them in your watching would make the story so much more. We are here for episode one, aptly named pilot. We're just going to make it through the A block today. Going to make it to the first commercial. Ryan Murphy is the overall name on this, but a big nod to Gus Van Sant, who is doing a marvelous job with the direction. The show is really simply a delight to watch. It is an eye candy feast with its characters, its sets, its costumes, its pace. Let us begin with the opening scene with Truman Capote watching the swans in the lake. The year given here is 1984. In the lake, all the swans, all white, save one black swan. Tom Hollander is starring in the role of Truman Capote, and he is crushing it. And after this intro piece, we're going to roll back in time to 1968, but it was literally this introductory scene is as far as I got to before I started taking notes. From this beginning part, just in this minute, I couldn't help but think about Truman Capote's 1959 piece for Harper's Bazaar called A Gathering of Swans. We're going to take a little bit from that piece here, written by Truman in 1959. A beautiful woman, beautifully elegant, impresses us as art does, changes the weather of our spirit. And that? Is that a frivolous matter? I think not. With the two swans adrift on these pages appears a signet, a fledgling of promise who may one day lead the flock. However, as is generally conceded, a beautiful girl of twelve or twenty while she may merit attention, does not deserve admiration. Reserve that laurel for decades hence, if she has kept buoyant the weight of her gifts, been faithful to the vows a swan must, she will have earned an audience all kneeling. For her achievement represents discipline has required the patience of a hippopotamus, the objectivity of a physician, combined with the involvement of an artist, one whose sole creation is her perishable self. Moreover, the area of accomplishment must extend much beyond the external. To pedal a realistic chord and it must be sounded, if only out of justice, to their cousins of coarser plumage. Authentic swans are almost never women nature and the world have it all deprived. God gave them good bones. Some lesser personage, a father, a husband, blessed them with the best of beauty emollients, a splendid bank account. Being a great beauty and remaining one is... At the altitude flown here, expensive. A fairly accurate estimate on the annual upkeep could be made, but really, why spark a revolution? And if expenditure were all, a sizable population of sparrows would swiftly be swans. It may be that the enduring swan glides upon waters of liquefied lucre, but that cannot account for the creature herself. Her talent, like all talent, is composed of unpurchasable substances, for a swan is invariably 
the result of adherence to some aesthetic system of thought, a code transposed into a self-portrait. What we see is the imaginary portrait precisely projected. This is why certain women, while not truly beautiful but triumphs over plainness, can occasionally provide the swan illusion. Their inner vision of themselves is so fixed, decorated with such clever artifice, that we surrender to their claim, even stand convinced of its genuineness. And it is genuine. In a way, the swan monk is more beguiling than the natural. After all, a creation wrought by human nature is of subtler human interest, a finer fascination than one nature alone has evolved. Truman Capote wrote that in 1959, four years into his friendship with Babe Paley. In the themes that run through my brain in this trashy, high-society, true-crime ride that Done and Done is, the thing I kept thinking about as the current equivalent almost of this same statement comes from my girl Taylor Swift in her New York University commencement speech in 2022, accepting her doctorate. This is only a tiny sliver. It's a great speech altogether, but it's the end of what she says in this segment that I think really lands the point. From Taylor Swift, it seems to me that there is a false stigma around eagerness in our culture of unbothered ambivalence. This outlook perpetuates the idea that it's not cool to want it, that people who don't try are fundamentally more chic than people who do. And I wouldn't know, because I've done a lot of things, but I've never been an expert on chic. But I'm the one who's up here, so you have to listen to me when I say this. Never be ashamed of trying. Effortlessness is a myth. I can't reinforce this enough, being a little older than Taylor Swift. There's a lot to that, which resonates through that piece from Truman Capote and through these episodes. For being a swan, everything is about trying. Effortlessness is a myth. That was scene one, y'all. Let's continue forward in the journey. But honestly, girls, what did you think was going to happen? Truly, from that Truman Capote piece of writing in 59, what other anticipation was there? There's a lot of foreshadowing here. On to the next scene. Here we are, 1968. Truman Capote is walking into Babe Paley's building with authority. Now, of course, of course he has authority. He, Truman Capone, and Babe Paley have been besties now for 13 years. Truman walks into that Paley apartment like he owns the place. His utter acceptance is taken for granted and noted. I mean, again, Tom Hollander crushing the role from the jump. Let's go ahead and talk about Bill and Babe's apartment. This opening scene set in 68 is rather stunning in its attention to detail with the decor. The filming location for this particular set was Steiner Studios in Brooklyn, but you could have fooled me. I'm pulling this next bit from LDecor.com by David Nash to summarize just a little bit about Bill and Babe's apartment, but also reinforcing just the absolute attention to detail. Production designer Mark Ricker and his team meticulously created the Upper East Side home of Babe and William Paley, which was designed by decorating legend Billy Baldwin. Designed by the architecture firm of Starrett and Van Vleck, 825th Avenue, the iconic 12-story Upper East Side Beaux-Arts apartment building at the corner of East 63rd Street was completed in 1916, and remains one of the most exclusive properties in New York City. The Paleys bought their 6,500-square-foot apartment in 1965 and moved in almost immediately. Spanning the entire ninth floor, the 20-room residence was an upgrade, to say the least, from their three-room Billy Baldwin-designed pet in the St. Regis that the couple called home 
since marrying in 1947. Naturally, Babe enlisted Baldwin to outfit their sprawling new apartment, and the result was a magnified version of their previous home. The apartment is fairly well known to those who know interiors, says Capote production designer Mark Ricker. When they bought the apartment, they loved what he'd done at the St. Regis so much they had him replace it. One of the most memorable elements of Baldwin's design was the campaign-style rooms tinted in printed cotton fabrics. To recreate several rooms in the apartment for the series, including the living room, Babe's bedroom, art gallery, and library, Rickert's team had plenty of historic imagery to work with. We pulled from the reference material as much as possible to get the scale of the furniture, the color, the tone, he adds. I found a floor plan of the apartment and highlighted the rooms we wanted to replicate, and the set designers went to town. The production designers even recreated the impressive art collection the Paleys kept at their Upper East Side home. From the butter-yellow walls of the living room to the pristine rows of leather-bound books lining the shelves of the library, for these well-dressed sets, no detail was too small or too big, like Pablo Picasso's seven-foot canvas, Boy Leading a Horse. Now in the collection of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the artist's rose period work was one of the many to find itself on a set wall. We reprinted and painted on top of it, says set decorator Cherish Hale. We printed everything to the actual scale, about 40 pieces, because they were real art collectors. Ricker had graphic designers reproduce bolts of fabric to upholster the walls and furnishings, and his team even built an array of furniture pieces that would have been nearly impossible to source, like a pair of red lacquered Ming-leg tables that appear in the apartment's gallery hall. Bill and Babe's apartment really beautifully, beautifully done. So in this scene, we have Truman Capote walking into this very, very stylish apartment, again like he owns the place. He commands the maid, the nanny, the florist, the cook. He says, take the grandkids to Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and then to Serendipity for burgers and shakes. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang was released December 18, 1968. If you wanted to set that perspective into your timeline, and Serendipity 3 would have been the place to go for after-movie Burgers and Shakes. Here's the thing with that scene. I did have to go back and listen again. Truman refers to the grandchildren here. Had to go back and listen because Babe's children in <laughs> this year, 1968, Babe had four kids, are in no way children. Babe's youngest in 1968, Kate, is 18 years old. Kate makes her infamous non-debut the summer of 1968, right after the assassination of Robert Fitzgerald Kennedy. Babe does not have her own small children to worry about, but sure, if the grandkids are there, this is a completely wonderful plan. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, fantastic, and serendipity. Serendipity is the place you'd want to Take kids if you shuffled them out of the house. Let's give just a moment to that legendary place. Serendipity is Serendipity 3. It is a famous restaurant made famous by another one of Truman Capote's swans, Marilyn Monroe. Serendipity is located at 225 East 60th Street between 2nd and 3rd Avenues in New York City. Serendipity opened in 1954 and certainly was and still is currently a pretty famous restaurant. Serendipity also functioned as a boutique for locals. Serendipity was really pretty popular with the smart and connected set in New York City. Both Marilyn Monroe and Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis frequent Serendipity. They love the place. Currently, Selena Gomez has a stake in Serendipity's ownership. 
I do want you to remember serendipity, just the name. This is named after the three princes of Serendip. We are going to be talking in the future about a pretty famous estate called Serendip in the future of our investigation, which attaches to a pretty grisly murder and an heiress too. Not the point now, just make note of the name. It is going to come back around in another way. <laughs> as everything is connected here on Done and Done. Let's talk about how those addresses connect. Bill and Babe live at 825th Avenue. This is located along Central Park, the west side. Three blocks down and five blocks east is Serendipity 3. So, this rings true to me. Also, that Truman Capote can boss Babe Paley's staff around. As for this building that Bill and Babe live in, so many famous residents. Again, the building Beaux-Arts style was built in 1916. Some of the famous names that have lived in that building we've heard about before. Some are coming in the future. Stavros Niarchos, Lily Safra, Jane Reitzman, and Anna Harkness, just to name a few. It's good stuff, y'all. I've now made it four minutes into the first episode, and we are only just beginning. Now is a great time for a quick break. When we return, it gets nasty with the scene that no one apparently quite expected, unless you're in the know. Back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. All right, I'm four minutes in and my notes are really, really flying now. We're going to make it to the scene with Babe Paley telling Truman Capote all, spilling all the dirty, dirty details about Bill Paley's latest transgression. So Babe sets the scene. She was in Paris hanging out with Givenchy. Sure, fitting in shows that could fit. Y'all know that Babe Paley was devoted to Balenciaga, though. That story was covered over on Patreon and Not Done Yet, Episode 52. Balenciaga retired in May of 1968, so maybe this does shuffle Babe back to Givenchy once she recovered from her grief over the master's retirement. Babe here, giving her bestie the details, explaining Bill not only has done it again, but Bill has done the worst thing he can do. He has taken me for granted. Babe, whoa, reveals that Bill was still having his affair with Happy Rockefeller and in our home. Babe is mad. Babe is big mad. And I would be too the whole scene is unhinged of this dalliance that Bill has with the lady as Babe is returning home early from Paris. I say the lady as the thing that shocked me at this moment was the lady being named as Happy Rockefeller. Sure, you could make the case for Happy. Happy is the second wife of Nelson Rockefeller, grandson of John D. Rockefeller, Nelson Rockefeller was the 49th governor of New York State, serving from 1959 to 1973. After that, Nelson will move over to another job, that of serving as vice president under Gerald Ford. Happy is an heiress herself to a cordage fortune, rope money, and Happy, this is her childhood nickname that sticks to her because of her sunny disposition. Happy meets Nelson Rockefeller in 1958 when she's working on his campaign for governor. Happy will become Nelson's private secretary in 1959, resigning two years later, just kind of hanging out waiting for the marriage, which finally happens in May of 1963 for Happy and Nelson. Why, oh, why does it take so long? It turns out Nelson has to get a divorce from his wife of 32 years with five kids, Mary Todd Hunter Clark. 
Mary Todd Hunter Clark, Nelson's first wife, does file for divorce. Reno divorce actually under the grounds of extreme mental cruelty. Let me give y'all some hot gossip here. In March of 1962, when Mary Todd Hunter Clark, Nelson's first wife, files for divorce, it is not only happy that Nelson Rockefeller is carrying on with. He is also, get a load of this from our boy Truman Capote himself, who carrying on with another one of the swans. These letters are coming from To Brief a Treat, the letters of Truman Capote by Gerald Clark. August 3rd of 1962, Truman is writing to his friends, Alvin and Marie Dewey. He has met them through the writing of In Cold Blood back in Holcomb, Kansas, but here Truman writing August 3rd. Dearest family, I had hoped to have a cable about the date by now or a letter, but perhaps something is on the way. When do you go on your vacation and where? To Colorado? It's this next paragraph, y'all. Well, Gloria has come and gone, and we had a real nice visit. This would be Gloria Vanderbilt. There is a new man in her life. It's supposed to be a great secret, but I will tell you because I must tell somebody. It's so fantastic. Nelson Rockefeller. Heaven knows what will come of it. It would certainly be a strange thing if they got married. The rest of the letter continues. That particular date, August 3rd, 1962, is the day Marilyn Monroe dies. So in Truman's next letter here, August 8th, he does talk about how he can't believe Marilyn Monroe is dead. She was such a good-hearted girl, so pure, really, so much on the side of the angels. Poor little baby, God bless her. Going to follow up here with yet another letter again from Truman to Alvin and Marie Dewey. This one dated the 16th of August, 1962, from Palamos, Spain. Truman is closing this letter saying no further news about Gloria V. and Nelson R. She has gone to California for a few weeks. As for Nell, this would be Harper Lee. What a rascal. Actually, I know she's trying very hard to get a new book going. But she loves you dearly, so I'm sure you'll be the first to hear from her when she does reappear. So, Nelson Rockefeller, apparently pretty busy. He is, to the astonishment of Truman Capote, hanging out a lot with Gloria Vanderbilt in August of 1962, canoodling about. But then, May 4th, 1963, the following year, Mary's happy. Gloria Vanderbilt, curiously enough, will marry again by the end of that same year. When on December 24th, 1963, Gloria Vanderbilt will wed her fourth and final husband, Wyatt Cooper. So sure, it could be Happy Rockefeller as the lady in question. You could make that case. Happy would have been in her early 40s, babe in her early 50s, so the Menopause angle, I guess, might hurt. It was quite a scene, though, if you want to revenge your ex-lover. That takes Red to a whole new level. If we played into the 1968 time frame, maybe it could be happy or or. <laughs> Turns out that, you know what, there's more than one governor's wife, friends. Y'all might have been shocked at that scene. I was not. I knew what was coming. I was a little stunned over the over-the-topness of it all. But the thing I want you to know that shocked me was the name-dropping of Happy Rockefeller because it is not in no way Happy Rockefeller that people were assuming who was the governor's wife at the time. Lacote Basque, 1965, was published in Esquire in 1975. This particular excerpt I am pulling from Truman Capote in which various friends, enemies, acquaintances, and detractors recall his turbulent career. This is a compilation extraordinary by George Plimpton. George Plimpton gives us a little bit himself, which is going to set up for you my potential candidate for the lady in question. Truman, I think, plays with timelines in Answered Prayers. 
And this lady is so, so much more connected into our cast of characters as it is a friend of Dominic Dunn's and the famous columnist herself, Liz Smith, who has alternate ideas. This gives us a pretty good idea on a high level also what's included in that Esquire piece. This is from George Plimpton. It was Liz Smith and freelancing who brought to public attention what was going on. She wrote a long piece for New York Magazine about high society's reaction to Lakote Basque 1965, Truman's Ramona Clay story about lunchtime goings-on at Henri Soule's fancy restaurant opposite the Hotel St. Regis, which had appeared in Esquire. The story was called Truman Capote in Hot Water, and the subhead, a quote from her story, read, Society's sacred monsters are in a state of shock. Never have you heard such cries of betrayal, such screams of outrage. For those who hadn't read the story in Esquire, Liz Smith described some of the indiscretions. Most of them were from the mouth of one Lady Ina Coolberth, purportedly Slim Keith. Some of these splashed across the pages in Liz Smith's felicitous words like Hollandaise that has missed the asparagus were rather mild. The Duchess of Windsor never picking up a check. Gloria Vanderbilt's failure to recognize her first husband as he came into the restaurant. So-and-so with bad breath. But others were not. Especially the devastating retelling of Anne Woodward's. She was Anne Hopkins in this story. Rags to Rich's career, ending in the shotgun shooting of her husband, William Woodward Jr., mistaking him in a darkened hallway for a cat burglar. Thinly disguised is hardly the way to put it in her case. In fact, Woodward committed suicide a few days before Esquire appeared on the newsstands, and there were many who spread the word she had jumped from the window because she had seen an advance copy. I remember a story about that, which was that Truman had it in for her because in Italy he had overheard her saying, yes, that's that faggot Truman Capote. And he did this. He pointed a finger at her like a pistol and went, bang, bang, bang. Less tragic, but no less shocking, was Ina Coolberth's story about the liaison in the Hotel Pierre between Sidney Dillon, undoubtedly Bill Paley, the head at the time of CBS, and the governor's wife, Marie Harriman, according to Liz. The scene ends with the Paley character trying to scrub menstrual blood from the sheets before his wife, Babe Paley, expected any minute returns from a European trip. Rough stuff. As Smith wrote, It is one thing to tell the nastiest story to all of your 50 best friends. It is another to set it down in cold century expanded type. Ain't that the truth. Okay, Marie Harriman. Who is that, y'all ask? This lady. If we're looking at Marie Harriman to be the lady in question, which I believe it always has been, this timeline fits better. Let me break it down. Marie, goodness, was the second wife of W. Avril Harriman. Who will Avril Harriman take for his third wife, one Pamela Digby Churchill Hayward, in 1971, upon the passing of Marie. But let's talk about Marie for a moment. She was born Marie Norton, and she will marry for the very first time in 1923 to Cornelius Vanderbilt Whitney. Cornelius Vanderbilt Whitney is the son of Harry Payne Whitney and Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney, and Gertrude, we know, brings the suit for little Gloria Vanderbilt's custody. That suit is filed against Gloria Morgan Sr., little Junior Gloria's mother, a big nod to my trashy royals crossover folks. Marie and Cornelius Vanderbilt Whitney, they are going to stay married until 1929. They have a Reno divorce, granted on the grounds of incompatibility. Now, in 1930, Marie 
divorced from Cornelius Vanderbilt Whitney, marries W. Avril Harriman, 1930. So let's throw in a little bit of a loop here. Marie is Harriman's second wife. Avril Harriman has daughters. One of his daughters marries the first and ex-husband of Babe Paley. His name is Stanley Grafton Mortimer. Marie and Avril Harriman will also take in Peter Duchin in 1951 after his bandleader father, Eddie Duchin's death. Now, Peter Duchin's mother, Newport heiress and legendary beauty Marjorie Ulrichs, passed away many years earlier. Marjorie Ulrichs passed away in August of 1937 at the age of 29. That is its own entire tragedy to unpack. But the thing I want to connect for you is that little Peter Duchin, taken in by Marie and Avril Harriman, will go on to marry <laughs> Brooke Hayward after her divorce from Dennis Hopper. Brooke Hayward, the daughter of Leland Hayward, who will, after Leland will, his divorce from Slim Keith in 1960, go on to marry Pamela. That's how Pamela Digby Churchill gets the Hayward. Backing up the bus many, many moons ago to connect us to the Swans in 1950, Slim Hawks at the time divorced her husband Howard Hawks to marry Leland Hayward. Slim and Leland Hayward last for a decade, that is until Pamela comes along. Marie Norton Vanderbilt Harriman is way, way more involved in this plot line of people through the years, way so more than Happy Rockefeller, who doesn't manage to get into that scene until 1958. Marie Norton Vanderbilt Harriman has been the scene from the beginning of time. Avril Harriman does have an impressive political and diplomatic career. Marie helps him with that. Avril Harriman also sets his wife Marie up in a gallery. Marie owns an art gallery for a number of years, all through the 1940s to the early 1950s. And in La Cote Basque 1965, about this transgression, Sidney Dillon, the alias for Bill Paley, had gone to see the lady in question about art. Marie Harriman makes so, so much more sense. Say perhaps Truman Capote is taking liberties with the stories that he has heard over the years. Maybe even going back in time to the mid-1950s. I want you just to connect this little bit. If Nelson Rockefeller was the 49th governor of New York State, you want to take a big guess who the 48th governor of New York State was? W. Avril Harriman. He serves one term right before Nelson Rockefeller moves into office. Marie Harriman is the governor's wife. Liz Smith, who is a friend of Nick, Nick trusts, Liz Smith knows it's Marie Harriman. That's who everybody assumed it was. Could Truman Capote, within Lacote Basque, really be talking about Marie and mixing timelines? She's way more connected into this tight colony of folks. Mysteries abound. Whoever the lady is, you have my thoughts. In whatever time frame it happened, the plot is diabolical. And Babe, rightfully, whenever and wherever it happened, is big mad. Babe in the scene says there are rules. Certain rules about how much humiliation one can stand. Truman Capote reassures Babe that oh, it's just her pride. Really, honey, you just need to take Bill for all that you can get. What materially can he provide you? Art, jewels. Truman will beg the question, why make the trade-off to divorcee? You can be unhappily married or happily divorced, but then everyone would forget about you. Effortlessness is a myth. I don't know, Truman Capone might have a point, but I do want to back up the bus here again to mention that Babe Paley is Bill's second wife, and Bill Paley always has been a notorious philanderer. 
He has been doing it across his whole married life, across both marriages. But really, truly, babe has a point. There are rules. Bill should know them. Bill has had so much time to learn them. (laughs) Truman Capote gets the blame, honestly, for this one, writing about it in his not even thinly veiled Ramona Clay. But Bill, don't give him something to write about. We're going to add in another super quick break here. When we come back, we're going to talk about Bill's first marriage. Babe Paley is not the first woman to be mistreated by her husband. Babe maybe should have taken some notes from Dorothy. See you on the flip, friends. All right, investigators, let's give a little bit of background on Bill Paley's first wife. Her name is Dorothy. Dorothy Hart as she was born. I think Dorothy's story with all of its spiderwebs, you're going to be really excited to hear about her, but her story in general, I think makes understanding Babe's point of view throughout what I've seen so far in episode one and two make so much more sense. I'm taking the easy way out here, but hey, obituaries really do sum things up. From New York Times from January 31st, 1998 by Enid Nimi. This is on the death of Dorothy Hart, Hurst, Paley, Hershon. Married a few times. Dorothy Hart was born in Los Angeles on February 25th, 1908. The only child of Seth Hart, an insurance broker, and the former Dorothy Jones. While she was in elementary school, the family moved to Dayton, Ohio for three years. Upon their return to Los Angeles, she attended Marlboro, an exclusive girls' school. She later spent a year at Bennett Junior College in Millbrook, New York, and furthered her lifelong interest in art by taking several art history courses. Described as one of the most beautiful girls in Southern California by Irene Selznick, Dorothy Hart was 19 when she met her first husband, Mr. Hurst, the third of William Randolph Hurst's five sons, while sailing on a yacht off Santa Barbara. Mr. Hurst had not yet entered his first year at Oglethorpe University in Atlanta, but the couple were married in New York December 1927. The groom dropped out of college after his freshman year and joined the Hurst Corporation, and the young marrieds became regulars in the glamorous cafe society of the period, out on the town almost every night. Mr. Hurst, who had difficulty working with his powerful father, began drinking heavily. Mrs. Hurst, hoping to set an example for her husband, who rarely showed up for work, took a job writing a column for Harper's Bazaar. Mrs. Hurst met Mr. Paley, the dashing head of the Columbia Broadcasting System in 1931. According to friends, it was immediately obvious that he was determined to marry her. After some months, she went to Nevada and filed for a divorce. Mr. Hurst followed her. The couple reconciled and returned to New York. Five months later, Mrs. Hurst again traveled to Las Vegas and was granted a divorce. In May 1932, she married Mr. Paley in Kingman, Arizona. Although seven years his junior, Dorothy was more worldly than he. Sally Bedell Smith wrote in All His Glory, her 1990 biography of Mr. Paley. She knew her way around in sophisticated circles. Friendships with men like Randolph Churchill counted a great deal to the ambitious Paley. In New York, she joined the Algonquin set, the playwrights, journalists, and other intellectuals whose luncheon repostes during the 1920s became a literary legend. Over the years, Mrs. Smith wrote, Mr. Paley's wife had an impact on him. Her political leanings, appetite for news, taste in art— and sense of style. She supported Franklin D. Roosevelt and embraced his proposals for social welfare. David Patrick Columbia wrote in Quest magazine in 1993, 
They were the golden couple on the town. She became his Pygmalion. His hunger to know satisfied her trenchant desire to teach. He had the instincts, but she, despite her youth, had the instincts and the knowledge. She began transforming his life. She got him to Savile Row tailors. She encouraged him to buy art and introduced him to dealers. In a short time, they began to accumulate what is now known as the William Paley Collection. At her suggestion, they pursued the thoroughly modern path of psychoanalysis. She was sketched by Matisse, photographed by Cecil Beaton and Horst, and listed as one of the world's best-dressed women and featured in Vogue and Harper's Bazaar. She decorated Kaluna Farm, their 85-acre estate in Manhasset, with a saltwater pool and an indoor tennis court, lining the walls with their growing collection of Impressionist and Post-Impressionist paintings. 32 servants looked after their house, gardens, and greenhouse. The Paleys separated in 1945, shortly after Mr. Paley returned from wartime service in London. Mrs. Smith observed in her book that Mr. Paley's peccadilloes weren't the only symptom of trouble ahead. To those with a sharp eye, other hairline cracks were showing in the marriage, Mrs. Smith wrote. When Dorothy corrected him in public, she was brisk and impatient, not gentle. They were divorced in 1947, and she received some paintings, furniture, silver, and $1.5 million. I never behaved as if the world revolved around him. Mrs. Hershon, this is Dorothy upon remarriage, once recalled about her marriage to Mr. Paley. Maybe that was the problem. I'm going to do that one more time. I never behaved as if the world revolved around him. Maybe that was the problem. So what is entirely different about Bill Paley's next marriage with Babe? Babe Paley's life absolutely does revolve around Bill. Effortlessness is a myth. We're still in this scene, y'all, so Truman will ask Babe, what do you want? Make Bill guess and have him treat you right, and then he convinces Babe to take a few chill pills, Truman says. Take a nice little walk in the valley. This is 1968, the setting of the scene, friends, December, if we're going to believe that. Let's take another little loop into a footnote of a story that I feel you may want to know about for coming episodes. It's just too much. I love this story. Jacqueline Suzanne's novel, Valley of the Dolls, did release in the spring of 1966. It was made into a film in 1967, co-starring one lovely Sharon Tate. A lot of history in Valley of the Dolls. But this bit really struck with me with Truman saying, let's take a nice little walk in the valley. The language is there. The lingo is there in the culture, but... Truman Capote has not yet begun his literary feud yet with Jacqueline Suzanne. This little bit is delicious, again, as a footnote from the letters of Truman Capote, assembled by Gerald Clark. Capote was involved in several literary feuds. The most amusing was the one with Jacqueline Suzanne, the author of such best-selling potboilers as Valley of the Dolls. Capote began the fight in 1969 by sliding her literary abilities in an appearance on Johnny Carson's The Tonight Show. She later retaliated on the same show, ridiculing his effeminate mannerisms, imitating his high-pitched baby-like voice, and all but pronouncing him a homosexual. His turn came again when he next appeared on Carson's show. Suzanne, he told Carson and his millions of viewers, looked, quote, unquote, like a truck driver in drag. That wounded her. She did indeed have heavy, somewhat mannish features, and she and her husband marched into the office of her lawyer, the eminent Louis Neiser, and demanded that Neiser draw up a suit for libel. 
Words are like chemicals, Neiser later wrote. Some combinations fizzle, others explode. The laughter which burst across the nation drove her and Irving Mansfield, her husband, and gifted partner in the dissemination of her works right into my office. Though Neiser believed that Capote had, in fact, committed a libel, he advised Suzanne against a suit. He changed his mind, however, when a few years later, Capote bragged to an interviewer that the reason Suzanne failed to sue him was that Neiser had informed her that she would lose any such lawsuit. All Capote's lawyer had to do, Neiser had supposedly told his client, was to dress a dozen real truck drivers in women's clothes and to parade them in front of a jury, which would thereupon conclude that Capote was right. She did look like a truck driver in drag. Neiser never told Suzanne any such thing, of course. Capote had invented his exchange with his client, and he wrote Capote a letter in which he demanded an apology. Capote's reply, which is the letter mentioned not in the footnote of the book, appeased both him and Suzanne, and the matter was dropped. Put that in your knowledge bank. Johnny Carson, married to Joanne. I think all of that's coming up, but kind of an interesting thing there, literary feud. Okay, we're almost seriously to the first commercial break. Truman Capote consoles Babe, holds her. Babe says, you're the only one that could ever hurt me, Truman. I mean, Babe's pride, right? And Truman's understanding of this should mean something, but do know that Truman Capote has always been his own very first original swan. We roll now to the opening credits, and wowza. Y'all, there is some kind of mastery of color, the scales of black and white and gray, with that russet overall, the splashes of other hues coming in, yellows, blues, greens, really powerful, but wow. The way the art design their team played with the various shades of purple, a nice little take on the royalty of the swans. It really is quite extraordinary. Well done, Visual Feast, the intro. Great job, A+. This whole thing is a note-taking feast as well. I am now 13 minutes in and looking at this word count. I'm going to stop here. I'm going to make this more than one part for the sake of your ears and my voice. I think that was plenty in this one for my investigator heart to yours. There is so much more coming. I can't quit investigating. That is the A block of Capote versus the Swans episode one. Stay tuned. So much more coming this week until we meet again for the B block. (laughs) Stay curious, friends, and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.